Across the front of our website, in big, bold letters, is our calling card. Science for people who give a shit. You may have seen it and immediately thought, that's me, or you, sir, are a child. Either reaction is well and good, or even great. We're not for everybody. You're here, though, so either you subscribed, or someone sent to you this audio version, or YouTube video, or someone shared the article with you, or an essay. I don't know what to call it anymore. Either way, I've got you in my claws, so let's presume you're on board with this whole idea. Now, you may fit into one of three camps. Number one, you love the science part, and want to use your knowledge in the forces of science for good, to better lives. Or, you identify with the people who give a shit part. You're a semi-pro action-taker, and you're curious to know how science plays a role in all of this. Or, you simply just care. You're a good person, but you're struggling to keep up to affect the world around you. However you identified with that tagline, you may have also asked yourself, what does it mean in practice? And that's a good question, because while the mantra isn't changing, I'm more focused than ever on putting it into practice for me and for you. Like I said, we're not for everybody. For example, we don't do a lot of 101-level stuff here. The train has mostly left the station there, but it's not going fast enough that you can't keep up. In fact, it's a big part of my job to make sure you can catch the train. To ensure you're as caught up as you need to be regarding what's really driving the most change, and to help you take action, feel better, and build a better today and tomorrow for everyone. To clarify, though, this also isn't the train to Busan. Nice on the outside, filled with deadly zombies on the inside. I don't shirk away from the hard stuff. Climate crisis is a crisis. COVID killed and disabled tens of millions of people. Growing antibacterial resistance is mildly terrifying, and racism touches everything, everywhere, all at once. But I also want to make sure I point you towards reputable, measurable actions you can take alongside thousands of other shit-givers so you don't want to jump off the train entirely. All of this is to say, when you sign on to be involved with science for people who give a shit, understand that I'm operating under the follow assumptions. 1. You agree that generalism, or at least a multidisciplinary approach, is essential. And that's not only because there's so much going on, but because the issues are systemic, and generalism can help us take a big step back to understand our vast, interconnected systems, to interrogate them and build new ones. Not that specialists aren't welcomed. Your numbers include many such humans, from surgeons to engineers, from third-grade teachers to pediatric cancer scientists, senators and AI researchers, designers and Hollywood producers, mechanical engineers who proved we could deflect asteroids, and more. I have learned so much from you, and you, in turn, have expressed immense patience with me, and thankfully an interest in taking at least a part-time wider field of view. Here's why. You know that big problems are rarely isolated. From heart surgery to soot pollution, from soil health to redlined city blocks, from wastewater to synthetic biology and drones that fight wildfires, no problem we face today exists or can be confronted, mitigated, or adapted to in isolation. Overheated city blocks, bedrooms and classrooms drive learning loss, mostly among the historically marginalized, while excess heat parches soil and vegetation, fueling excessive wildfires. All while expensive cities drive people to take longer commutes in combustion engines, and often into that same increasingly dry wildland-urban interface, escalating the odds of harm from fires, the opportunity for zoonotic spillovers, and the destruction of habitats and biodiversity the world over. Great news, though. Our biggest problems are tremendous opportunities. 
For example, plant-based diets reduce deforestation, improve soil health, reduce cardiovascular diseases and the need for heart surgeries, of course, as do cooler city blocks and reduced exposure to transportation and wildfire pollution, but also improved indoor air quality from greater airflow, more air cleaning, and reduced exposure to unhealthy particles and gases mitigates childhood asthma, but also levels the playing field against a swath of airborne viruses, including COVID and measles and the flu. Fewer children and workers exposed to this garbage improve school attendance and economic production, building a more inclusive, educated electorate who theoretically elects more people from different backgrounds, all of whom actually give a shit. It's the circle of life. Mitigation and adaption must happen in concert. Not unlike tackling your never-ending to-do list, just playing catch-up all the time against these systemic threats means you're constantly bailing out the boat, when in reality, we've got to stop the water from coming in altogether. Mitigation and adaptation must happen simultaneously for a variety of reasons, but among those, one, because we took too long to do anything about anything, two, many people have been suffering for a very long time, three, increasingly more people are suffering today and will be tomorrow, and four, we have been steadfastly allergic to accounting for the costs along the way. Sure, yeah, no question. By a variety of measures, most of us are better off than at any point in history. You are, for example, less likely to die from cancer than basically ever before, and I, by way of my skin color, sex, gender, race, health history, family history, education, and so much more, punched one of history's most valuable golden tickets through exactly zero effort of my own. But averages conceal quite a bit of inequality, and to be clear, a rising tide lifting all boats uh, metaphor doesn't imply all the boats started at the right depth or height. I don't know how you measure boats. Also, maybe that's not the best metaphor in a time of catastrophic sea level rise. The point is I'm starting to run out of battery power on these metaphors. The point is progress has come at enormous costs to resources and biodiversity that, again, we've never willingly paid the cost for. And now those bills are coming due whether we like it or not, including vaccinating bees, for example. Great work. That often means we know where we have to go, and we do. But more of us, those privileged enough to make it this far, are feeling the effects in places we didn't expect, and way sooner than anticipated. Feeling it in canceled insurance policies, rolling blackouts, flooding where once there was drought and then there's going to be drought again, in retirement plans stuffed with stranded fossil fuel assets, in astronomical food prices, in drought where once it was sunshine, and, you know, pandemics. Sure, yeah, we need to electrify everything. But to say that our grids are wildly, devastatingly unprepared to handle even twice the current load, much less three times as required to electrify everything, would be a dramatic understatement. And that's because of decades of inaction, prioritizing pipelines over power lines, and worse. And that's without the threat of freezing, fires, or flooding, or in a better future, millions of two-way industrial and home storage systems and distributed microgrids. I want to be clear. It didn't have to be this way. Our problems are self-induced. Well, I guess it depends on how you define self. Two segments of the population have never really changed. One, the culprits, and two, the marginalized. Because Group 1 has yet to really see any repercussions from stripping the planet of her resources like some Michael Bay movie, they've yet to stop doing so. 
So group two continues to bear the brunt of frontline exposure to everything. I'm decidedly not a degrowther, mostly because I live in the world of what is politically possible, even if reforming the electorate and writing radical new policy is part of my mission here. But consumption at all costs, or I guess, for my argument, no costs, is a decision a bunch of really rich folks made a long time ago and continue to make, and then literally, again, they sold it to us in the form of fossil fuels and forests and fast fashion. I fully understand the desire not to have bad guys in these scenarios and to seek out the middle ground, and I do know that swing voters really matter. But I also think it's pretty naive, knowing what we know about the history of real-world bad guys and about our corporate and political actors and systems today. Imagine for a brief moment, if your country had the highest maternal mortality rate among developed countries, but one half of your country's elected representatives claimed to be pro-life and wanted to make that country great again. Stick with me here. Now imagine they voted consistently and proudly against baseline policies that supported pregnant people, parents, and children, all in the name of tax cuts for the wealthy, who require more or less none of those policies to survive. In fact, they went further than voting against good policies. They've sought and often succeeded to eliminate past good policies while writing new bad ones that deprive even more pregnant people of health care, forcing them to have babies even if they were forcibly impregnated, or the babies no longer even alive, and then to be on the hook for providing them with life essentials. Those same bad guys have deprived local health departments and water utilities of the resources to evolve beyond fax machines and lead pipes because apparently government spending is evil though imperfect. They gerrymandered districts through a variety of measures to achieve a simple outcome, so black people cannot vote. Don't believe me? From Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, the Census Bureau counts imprisoned individuals as residents of the jurisdiction in which they are incarcerated. Because most new prison construction occurs in predominantly white, rural areas, white communities benefit from inflated population totals at the expense of the urban, overwhelmingly minority communities from which the prisoners come. You're welcome. So yeah, these culprits, or bad guys, design the systems that got us here, and seek to design more. So I think we should both litigate the hell out of the past, and also be hell-bent on imagining a better today and tomorrow. Our problems are, yeah, already affecting people, but to be clear, they can get a lot worse. Tick-tock goes the boom-boom. We are discovering more every day that tipping points aren't linear, nor do we really understand them beyond that simple phrase. While it seems like we can slow, if not stop, additional global heating by reducing new emissions to actual zero, we can't, for example, put sea level rise back in the box. That's no bueno. Hey everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place, really, for our most dedicated shit-givers. A place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year, and it's grown to hundreds of shit-givers from all kinds, from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles 
research and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member sourced action steps, twice monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community, and we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, Go ahead and subscribe for free, and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening, and as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. We have made enormous strides to bring projected temperature rise scenarios into something relatively manageable. But as COVID continues to kill 150,000 Americans a year, I'm wildly concerned about our inclination to normalize an enormous amount of suffering. Bina Venkatarman, one of my favorite podcast guests to date, and to be clear, I love you all like children. Bina wrote a book about how to be a better ancestor. This very simple idea has unlocked much of my focus here because you simply cannot be a better ancestor by hoping shit gets better and posting black boxes on your Instagram stories. You have to do the work for today and tomorrow, and not just in the turns out pretty creepy long-termism effective altruism way. If you want your descendants to consider you the cool great-great-uncle, you need to drive change today, like right now, so they know deep down you did what you could to not only alleviate suffering for the people who have it much worse than you do, but to actually make shit better, like way better. Because if nothing else, setting a foundation of way better now will pay off big time for them later. Remember, money isn't the only thing that compounds. Compounding money is great if it's available to you. Compounding money given to children at birth and to parents in the form of wildly successful tax credits we let expire, on the other hand, was fucking awesome, if sad now. But you know what else compounds? Well, suffering. But good news, so does action. And action compounds across people and across time. More of that compounding action, we have less suffering. And that's science too. Compound action is a big reason why we are so much better off today than in the past. Millions of our recent ancestors, but especially, again, historically marginalized people who had no choice, decided not today, over and over again, as they fought for the civil rights we take for granted. For an equal education, for clean air, clean water, against Nazis, and more. They, not a single one of them, but all of them together over time, are proof that compound action works. A little bit, every day, from each of us, together, all of us, it adds up. We can get shit done if we collectively work for it. Compound action is really just socially oriented action, or organizing. And it's essential to eliminating the bullshit personal versus systemic actions divide that pisses me off so much. Many of our most recommended action steps revolve around organizing. Understand, though, this work is not easy, even when conducted on a bedrock of privilege like my own. 
stands on the shoulders of millions of mostly oppressed people who have been doing it for decades and centuries. You might be asking yourself at this point, if we know so much, if we're so powerful, why aren't facts enough? If our grandparents and their parents fought and achieved so much, why wasn't it enough? When will it be enough? My friend, they're vast forces incentivized to incentivize us to not get there. There is no time to have wool over our eyes when we know so much. Understand this. If Amy Westervelt's every season of her show drilled wasn't enough, a new study this week in the journal Science and reported on everyone, including us, showed how Exxon not only knew they were driving a climate crisis, but that their own internal models of projected global warming were more accurate than academics and governments basically everywhere. In the words of another American hero, they are who we thought they were. They also know what we're up to, so they've given up on cars and pivoted to sweatpants. They fermented insurrections for tax cuts and have decided to defend the Electoral College to the death. They're plugging fast fashion and gas stoves for profits. They go after ESG and vaccines because they're confident their constituents don't understand them well enough to question it because they've deprived public schools of funding for decades. They will greenwash everything from net zero plans to fetuses if it means keeping minority control over Congress, the stock market, state houses, and your body. We need our own carrots and sticks. If it isn't clear, there's no winning this fight. We simply achieve enough together to fight another day, and then another, and then another. And there's no way they let us do that simply through incentives, no matter how gargantuan the rewards from, say, electrifying every business, building, appliance, and automobile in the Gnome Galaxy may be. I'm extremely wary of the additional resources required to build what we need to build, of the ecosystems that could be destroyed along the way, of simply reorienting land use and geopolitics around precious graphite and nickel instead of dinosaur bones. But I'm also partial to the argument that some folks aren't going to get in this fight for real without us painting a very different picture of the future, not just a better one. So not just a world where the baseline is, again, finally clean air, clean water, clean energy, but one with an abundance of these like we've never seen, where much of nature is conserved and rewilded, to power vastly more carbon capture, if it actually works, and at scale. Who knows? To power heavy industry to build more sustainable cities, and desalination for drinking water. This is a nuanced landscape and problem, clearly. A future of abundance doesn't mean everybody just gets a jacked-up but electric F450 with a battery that could otherwise power a small town and which required minerals mined with very small hands in a country still locked in energy poverty and where Ebola is a weekly thing. That's not a better or a different future. That's today. We know and have access to most of what we need to do from technology to policy. I've pointed out previously that the IRA and CHIPS bills should be seen as a one-two punch for this better, cleaner future. IRA unlocks, through massive funding incentives, the technologies we have right now to produce and deploy an unholy volume of what's already available, while CHIPS funds new research and lab-to-line projects that could make the 2030s and beyond just unimaginably cool. Likewise, mRNA vaccines and CRISPR could protect billions from infection and illnesses that hold back families and continents alike. 
Of course, our hyper-focus on shiny new things like technology and unaffordable medicine over people and basic public health is part of the reason we're in this pickle. We need measurable outcomes. Measurable outcomes give us something clear to aim for. TVs cannot listen to you is a pretty clear standard. No forever chemicals, full stop, isn't complicated to understand. Execution is another thing, but that's the point I'm trying to make. It's one thing to say, we'll defeat this virus, and another to say, we're going to vaccinate 90% of the population and provide 50% of the required shots to achieve global vaccine equity, and then do the actual hard work to reverse engineer those clear goals to build the teams, processes, budgets, and short-term milestones required to actually get there. Similarly, ESG is in a mess in part because we haven't come close to agreeing on how we measure, certify, and standardize emissions, much less terms like net zero or removal or by outlawing offsets because they're just not real. Building these standards is massively important to goal setting and then holding everyone responsible for getting their shit done, tick tock. Because markets and people aren't rational, even with the best information. And this transition, which is well underway, very messy, and needs to go much faster, isn't going to make this thing less messy. Incentives are everything, which illustrates why Despite saving the world, the biotech sector didn't finally explode, in a good way, after the COVID vaccine hit. Because what's next? What has that implication? Where's the payoff? What are the incentives for ESG without standards? Without universal carrots and sticks? This is what IRA does so well, frankly. It more or less ignores ESG as we know it in favor of industrial policy designed to build industries where there are none. Long-tenured trading partners are understandably pissed about the America-first sourcing and production requirements behind IRA, but IRA's money is significant enough that a red state gets a new South Korean EV factory every Tuesday, basically. Which is interesting, because every single congressperson from every single red state voted against it. The point is, we don't have it all figured out. We need to figure out how to figure it out. Stat. Quick story. My first close friend to have children, who is also a longtime dog owner, once described the difference between raising a puppy and a child. With dogs, you put in a decent amount of training in the first two years or so, and then they're just dogs for 10 years. Couldn't be easier. With kids, about every six months, just when you think you've nailed it, everything changes, if not reverses entirely from crawling to walking to running to food preferences and then hormones, and that goes on until they're about 50, right? Change is going to happen and it's going to happen fast and it's going to keep happening. We need to elect young people who represent the majority, and especially the marginalized, who will build solid, equitable foundations today because they've experienced days and years without them. So we can be better prepared for an expectedly volatile tomorrow. As we push through even more transformative changes, our grandparents could only dreamed of. We need to build companies and institutions who respect and care for their workers and their families and their civil rights, who won't deplete the ecosystems we all share and the very limited resources we have remaining to support our basic needs and more sustainable lifestyles. We need to harness the massive potential of our youth while acknowledging that the rest of us have an enormous role to play here. But to do all that, we need to get better about acknowledging what we don't know and thinking about how to think. To do better better requires trust. 
in one another, that we care, that we'll step up when it counts and where it counts, that we won't pull the ladder up after us. It requires a radical reorientation of our assumptions and expectations to finally put into practice our values, to show up for one another, together, whenever we can, and when we're most alone, importantly. To understand that 1% better every day doesn't feel very different today or even tomorrow. I mean, if anything, it can feel like nowhere near enough. But in 365 days, much less by 2035 or 2050, at the rate of 1% a day for each of us together, we can build something entirely new and fucking awesome. That's compound action. That's what we're about. And that's science for people who give a shit. All right, let's get down to the news part. Here's your action steps for today. Mutual aid is probably the most effective way to help the folks around you. Find a network near you at the link in our show notes. Want to take on one of the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals? Google's offering cash prizes in their 2023 Solution Challenge. Build a team and get to work. To understand the climate crisis, you have to understand our food systems. Nobody does a better job at that than civil elites. I urge you to subscribe today. Here's the news this week from my notebook. In health and medicine news, the New York City nurses' strike ended, but we are still wildly short of the nurses required for what is called a functioning healthcare system. All the gas stove arguing started with a study saying 13% of childhood asthma can be attributed to them. Fuck that. The EPA's new soot rule doesn't go far enough, and misleading social media ads and gobs of venture capital money fueled online mental health companies that really don't do much. In climate news, why is California letting all this water just run out to sea? We need a gazillion more electricians to build this fancy new future. Mass climate migration is coming. How do we prepare? And Vox Media, congratulations, formalized a ban on fossil fuel ads. In food and water news, clean cooking could reduce emissions faster than we thought. There's a new NASA satellite that'll measure Earth's water every month. Anchovies and sardines, are they a climate solution in a can? I don't know, apparently, but they're also fucking delicious. And the Somalia hunger crisis means we need to redefine the word famine. In computer news, identity thieves walked right past experienced security to get at your credit report. The Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, shows online privacy is very much still an afterthought. And this will surprise you, but Twitter, Facebook, and Telegram drove much of the technology behind the far-right Brazilian protests. Lastly, 270,000 patients were exposed after hackers targeted a Louisiana hospital. In COVID news, how well did cash incentives work for COVID vaccines? Pretty well. Why isn't wastewater data used more broadly yet? Here's what a clean indoor air revolution looks like. And good news, long COVID may resolve for most folks within a year, however brutal that year may have been. For more, visit us at importantnotimportant.com. <laughs>